The Old Testament lesson today comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'm going to read um, all of verses 20 through 40, which is a little more than what's listed in the bulletin. Uh, This is an early incident in the life of Elijah, who is the first of the classic prophets of Israel. He is in this passage uh, having the first of several confrontations he will have with King Ahab and the prophets of Baal. The pro- Baal is the god of rain and fertility, and this is a time of drought. So hear now the word of God. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go about limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer Elijah a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire is indeed God. And the people answered, Well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying out, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he's meditating, or he's wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Then they cried aloud, as was their custom. They cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, about three in the afternoon. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came closer to him. First he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar 
large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces and laid it out on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. Then they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the river Kishon and killed them there. This is the word of the Lord. Luke tells us that after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill, close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people. And it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word. Let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I do not normally choose more than one text from the lectionary on which to base my sermon, for more often than not I find more richness in one text than I can even share uh, in the length of a sermon. But today I've chosen two texts that are both scheduled by the lectionary because they provide similar insight and challenge, particularly on this weekend when we as a nation remember people who have given their lives in battle and in which as a church we gather around the Lord's table to remember the death of Christ until he comes again. Let us pray. Lord, let us hear, remember, and even be changed in ways that neither we nor our society nor our religion can foresee. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. First, the insight from these two stories. The Gospel reading features a Roman centurion. You may recall that during the time of Jesus, the Romans rule over the Jewish people, and many of Jesus' early followers are Jewish, as his Jesus himself. You may also remember that a centurion is a high-ranking officer in the Roman military. This particular centurion has good relations with the Jews over whom the government that he represents rule. He is their benefactor. He has built them a synagogue. He has heard of the healings that have been performed by one named Jesus, who many of them believe to be the Messiah. This particular centurion is of sufficiently high rank and personal wealth to own at least one slave. He appears to hold his slave in high regard, both as a human being and as a monetary asset. When his slave becomes ill, the centurion sends elders of the Jewish community to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his slave. Yet when Jesus draws near the centurion's home, the centurion does not feel worthy to stand in his presence. And so through intermediaries, he asks that Jesus simply heal his slave with a word, much as he, the centurion, has the power to issue a word to a soldier or a slave and to have that word enacted and obeyed. Jesus, upon hearing this, praises the centurion for his faith in the power of Jesus' word. When the centurion's friends return to his house, they find the slave in good health. The insight No matter how powerful the centurion, ultimate power belongs to God, a reality that the centurion recognizes and respects and for which he draws the praise of Christ. The Old Testament story introduces us to the prophet Elijah. Elijah is the first of the classic prophets called by God. He is called to oppose Ahab, the strongest king in the Omri dynasty, who along with his notorious wife Jezebel 
ruled northern Israel with an iron fist and a cruel hand from 869 to 850 B.C. Elijah, as a prophet, wakes up every day to challenge King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He challenges them on their failure to provide simple justice for the people who suffer under their rule. And he challenges them for importing into the people of Israel worship of of the Phoenician Baal, the god of fertility and rain. In light of the tremendous power that Ahab wields and of the near state religion status of the worship of Baal, the people of Israel for whom Elijah is responsible slip in their own allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A slippage which draws the ire of Elijah who accuses them of limping between two separate opinions, that of Baal and that of the God of Israel. During a three-year period of drought, Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal to a duel over whose deity or God it is that can produce rain. A duel in which the prophets of Baal are the pre-season favorites since their God is, in fact, the God of rain. But in an elaborate day-long contest about which we just read, The prophets of Baal fail to produce so much as a drop of moisture from their god of rain. By contrast, when Elijah's turn comes, the fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust of an altar that Elijah has constructed And when the fire even licks up the water that Elijah has poured in the trench he's dug around the altar, it is clear when all this happens that the God of Israel is in fact the God to bring rain and end drought. When the people of Israel see the fire licking up the water, they fall on their faces and they renew their worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the next episode, the drought ends, thus acting as a solo prophet, one human being. Elijah has prevailed over 450 prophets of Baal. The insight, no matter how powerful the dominant religion, no matter how numerous its prophets, no matter how cruel and unjust the rulers who establish it, the power of God prevails. A line in the psalm for today reads, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The insight of both these stories speaks of God's power exceeding even that of a centurion, a cruel king and a wicked queen, and gods who claim to bring rain but in the end produce nothing but dust and ash. Greatly is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So how do these two people, Elijah and this centurion, come to this insight? Basically, they each make their best effort 
They bring the respective problems of doubt, of drought and illness before the Lord. In this case, he said in the children's sermon, they trust, they trust that in some way God will work his will and prevail. Elijah prepares the elements of the altar in hopes that God will rain down fire. The centurion asks Jesus to speak a word in hopes that that word will heal his slave. Neither Elijah nor the centurion know exactly how the drought will end or exactly how the slave will be cured. Their actions do not cause rain to come or healing to occur. Rather, they entrust both drought and illness to God, and in their cases, God prevails. Despite their own respective power, which in both cases is significant, they recognize the superior power of God. When drought ends and healing occurs, they know they have not caused the rains to fall or the illness to dissipate. But rains do fall and healing does come. The power of the God of Israel prevails and the centurion and Elijah both trusted that power. In this regard, it is my hunch though it is not my personal experience, that Elijah and the centurion are akin to the people that our nation remembers this weekend. People who placed themselves in danger out of choice, out of responsibility to defend or serve our nation. People who lost their lives in such places of danger out of such motivation. Like Elijah and the centurion, the people we remember put forth their best effort. They knew they would not and could not control the outcome. They knew their life was ultimately in God's hands. Whether or not the cause for which they fought would ultimately prevail, although in most instances it has, whether or not the nation they served would survive for their children and grandchildren, though it has, they knew that such a large outcome as well rests ultimately in the heart and mind of God. Like Elijah and the centurion, they sang with the psalmist, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Likewise, when we gather in a few minutes at the table, we entrust God with our lives. There's something about the symbolism of coming forward that, that reinforces that even more. We are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to be transformed in whatever way God deems that we should serve God. Like the centurion, we do not know the nature of the healing that God will provide. Like Elijah, we do not know ourselves. We ourselves do not cause fire to come down and drought to end. Like them both, 
we present ourselves to God, trusting that God will do what God will do with us and trusting that what God does with us will fit God's larger purposes of faithfulness and healing, of rule that is just and provides freedom. When we come to the table, we come in trust. Now, in addition to the insight that these two stories provide us, they also provide us with a challenge. Something of an intellectual challenge, theological challenge, it's something of a faith challenge, and it's something of a challenge to our own lives. Frankly, neither of these stories ends in the way that most of us would like them to end. The last line of the Elijah story, upon hearing of which you grew silent, the last line reads this way. Elijah brought the prophets of Baal down to the river Kishon and killed them there. And the last line of the centurion story not quite as dramatic. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, I don't know about you, but I, for one, would feel so much better if the 450 prophets of Baal had been allowed to return to, northern, to the northern kingdom if they had been allowed to lick their wounds, if they had been allowed to reconsider their ways, if they had been allowed to live the remainder of their days quietly as the God of Israel continued to prevail over the God whom they represented. And can you imagine, can you imagine how nice it would have been if the centurion had come back and seen his healed slave and said, I set you free. Can you imagine the impact that would have had in history? It would be so much nicer if these stories had these happy endings rather than the bloodshed and the continued slavery. But they don't. They don't. So what does it mean for our ability to receive these stories of Scripture? What does it mean for us to say, as we say in the ordination vows that, that Bill just said, that Scripture is unique and authoritative and God's Word for us? Does it mean that when we hear endings like this, where slaves are kept in slavery and prophets of other religions are slaughtered, that we are to, quote, go and do likewise? Does it mean that we're to try to destroy from the face of the earth every religion, not our own? Does it mean that we're not to concern us ourselves with people or nations who are not yet free? I think not. 
the challenge these texts present is this. We clearly know, better than Elijah and his contemporaries, that it is better not to kill people in the name of religion. And we clearly know, unlike the centurion, that it is better to set people free than to keep them enslaved. We know both these things almost to a certainty. But we also know that both freedom of religion and the end of slavery are relatively recent values to which certain cultures in the world have come and to which many have not yet come. We know that these values are neither known nor shared by every religion and every culture. And when we are honest, we acknowledge that these values, relatively speaking, are new even to us, to our religion, to our culture, even as enlightened as we supposedly have always been. So what are we to think about these stories and what are we to do in light of such knowledge? Perhaps it's the case that these two wonderful stories with their less than wonderful endings appear in the Bible as a subtle reminder that the march of God's will and way is still unfolding, still being revealed to us, to our lives and to our world. Perhaps these less than happy endings remind us that there are things we do not know today. Things we think we know, but about which, like people who followed Elijah in the centurion in history, will grow to change our minds. Perhaps these less than happy endings to these stories remind us that there are things we still need to place before God at the altar to see what God will do with them. Just like Elijah prepared the altar in hopes that God would bring fire and the centurion sent for Jesus in hopes that he might bring healing. Perhaps these less than happy endings ask us to be open to new and different endings that God may have in our own story, in our own religion, in our own nation. Endings that lie far beyond even our most hopeful and beautiful imaginings. Now, there's no better place to present ourselves for the hope and possibility of such transformation than at this table in which bread and wine to our senses of touch and taste and smell and sight and hearing become or transformed into body and blood for our faith in which we become something still to be revealed in us and to us and through us. So come to the table. Come to this table. Perhaps fire will come down, licking the water. Perhaps slaves will be freed because you come. Perhaps healing, your own healing. The healing of someone close to you, perhaps, 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 
that will occur. And who knows what else might happen.